Richland Thomas breaks one. They take him into the end zone with Peterson on his back. That is a nine-yard touchdown pass, and the Saints have captured this one. It is season nine, episode twenty of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. Uh, thank you so much for picking this podcast out of the nearly seven hundred thousand podcasts that exist today. I saw that number the other day, and it blew me away. I wonder how many existed when we started this show in two thousand eleven. I bet less than a hundred thousand, but I'm guessing there's seven hundred thousand now. I also heard. That to be in the top 5% of podcasts, you only need 10,000 downloads. So, interesting. Uh, Welcome to the show today. It's been a fun week. So, for the last 15 months or so, I've been working with Bill Hoffheimer, ESPN PR, uh, to try to book Joe Tessitore. Now, as you know, if you've listened to this show uh, for a long time, basically every year, we have had the play-by-play man for Monday Night Football on the show at least one time. started during the Mike Tirico era, and we had Mike on four or five years in a row. And then when Mike moved on, we seamlessly transitioned into uh, the Sean McDonough era. We had Sean on, I think, two times. Uh, I think his reign was two years. And then last year, as I normally do around August, I sent Mr. Hoffheimer an email, and it just never happened last year. Uh, I'm not sure why. My guess is that they probably kept the media away from that booth uh, as much as possible last year. Obviously, there was a lot of negativity uh, towards Jason Witten and the job that he did on the show. And I wonder if that played a part in me not getting Tessitore on the show last year. Uh, I had been hearing... Rumbles from Hoffheimer here and there that Joe would be willing to do the show this year and that am I still interested? And of course, I would say to him, yes, I'm still interested. And then I would just wait. You can only, you know, you can only ask so many times, I think. And I booked a show this week, which I thought was a pretty good one. I did an interview early in the week with Scott Burnside uh, from The Athletic. I said last week I wanted to talk some hockey. Uh, on the show this week, and I did do that. We recorded an interview with Scott, which we'll hear after the book club. We did about 25, 26 minutes just on the first, you know, 13 games or so of the NHL. We do talk a little bit of Sabres, a little bit of Eichel, and then we, you know, open it up to league-wide. What is Scott seeing so far in the season? And then I recorded the next day an interview uh, with Neil Best from... New York Newsday, Neil's been on a bunch of times. I love talking to Neil. He's kind of a really fun guy. And I was really interested to talk to him because I read something earlier in the week that Michael Kay had won the ratings book over Mike Francesa uh, for the first month of the fall ratings period. And I was really interested in that because they made a big deal out of it, even though ratings books don't work like that. They're three-month endeavors, not one-month endeavors. So I said, we got to get Neil on the show to talk about that. Now, you're not going to hear that uh, that conversation until the next 
podcast. And the reason why is shortly after I had recorded that, I got an email from Bill Hoffheimer who said, listen, uh, Joe Tessitore is available on Friday at 1230. Would you like to do it? And I said, yes, absolutely. I would like to do it. So then I was all ready. I did my research and prepared for the interview uh, only to be told that uh, Joe was not available at 12.30, but 6 o'clock. Uh, but, of course, no problem. Uh, shifted the interview to 6 o'clock. Uh, the wife and the daughter and I went to dinner just a little bit later. And it was no problem at all. We did almost 40 awesome minutes with Joe, who was one of the nicest guys uh, that I've had on this show. He rattled me right off the top by telling me he, he's a listener of the Sportscasters, which was a, a shock. Uh, literally no one has ever said that to me before an interview like that. You know, no one's ever come out and say, hey, it's great to be on. I'm a listener. I've never heard that. So that was really, really great. Even if he made it up, he made me feel good. Uh, and I think maybe boosted my confidence. It's a great interview. I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, so I'm going to stop jibber-jabbing in a second so you can. Uh, of course, we'll lead off with uh, with Joe. And then we'll do the book club. And then we'll come back with Scott Burnside. And then I will do one last thing. Uh, so that's the agenda for the show today. And of course, next week on the show, we'll have Neil Best. So I can promote that ahead of time. It's a really fun interview. I love talking about uh, New York sports radio and Mike Francesa. Uh, one half of the greatest sports radio show of all time, the Mike and the Mad Dog Show. Uh, so I love doing that. Okay, with all that said, uh, I don't think there's much more reason for me uh, to run Flat My Gums. Uh, as Ron Burgundy once said. So I will take a break. And when we get back, we will be here uh, with the play-by-play man for Monday Night Football, Joe Tessitore. Our first guest today is from Schenectady, New York, and a graduate of Boston College. Uh, he's making his debut on the Sportscasters, and he is the lead play-by-play man for Monday Night Football, one of the most iconic brands in sports media. Let's do this. A warm Sportscasters welcome to Joe Tessitore. What's up, Joe? How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Very excited to have you on. Um, man, you are the Mike Trico, Sean McDonough, and now now yourself. Uh, Monday Night Football play-by-play man to be on, and uh, it's very exciting. I mean... Let's just start kind of there, like researching your career, all the great things you did. Like, is there something a little bit extra when you do that first game? Like, wow, Monday Night Football. Like, did that mean something to you? Just like kind of the brand itself and to kind of represent it and be one on that list, the short list, you know, with Michaels and, you know, the guys I mentioned from ES- the ESPN era. And of course, like when I was growing up, um, well, I guess it was Michaels when I was growing up, but also, uh, you know, uh, Cassell, all the all the the amazing names that have yeah, been. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cassell and Gifford and Danny mm-hmm. Don. I mean, it's a very obviously it's a very short list. I'll tell you the one thing, and I know, and and Sean and 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 Mike are are friends, and I know, you know, I've talked about having this job and everything that goes along with it. Um, and I I'm sure they felt exactly the same way. You're very aware of the fact it's a legacy job. Like that's the one thing you're very aware of is is where the show stands in the annals of sports TV history and TV history in general. I mean, there are a few iconic brands that have stood the test of time. 
you know, 60 Minutes clearly has. There's there's a few others, but Monday Night Football is one of them. Monday Night Football is one of those brands, you know, great classic American brands. So I don't know how I necessarily felt the first time I did Monday Night Football, but I know that I know this. I know still to this day, no matter how many games, you know, a year and a half into doing it, when you hear the music, but in both tracks, when you hear Hank, and then when you hear, you know, the dun 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 dun. If there's a Pavlovian response right. that you stand up a little taller, you open up your chest a little wider, and you really become one with what you're broadcasting. That I can tell you for a fact. That is what is definitely different. Obviously, I've been very blessed in my career to work on some great crews and some have broadcast some great events and some singular sort of one-off big events. I've done heavyweight championship fights and title fights at Madison Square Garden and the Belmont Stakes on ABC with a triple crown on the line and, you know, the college football playoff for the biggest, you know, primetime SEC game you can do with Alabama or LSU, all that kind of stuff. But the response you physically have when that music hits you and the red lights on definitely is different than anything else. It's interesting because, like, the NFL is in their 100th season this year. They're doing that celebration. Right. And, and I'll see the different shows they have on where there's, like, I don't know, 100 games or 100 moments, all the different stuff they're doing. And it got me thinking today. I was thinking about things that have happened on Monday Night Football, the iconic things like maybe go back to John Lennon's, the announcement of John Lennon's tragic passing. Or, that happened on Monday Night Football. Um, yes, you know the comeback. Marino beating the yeah, Marino. Bears the night where the whole world, the whole country stopped to see the Ditka Bears, right? Right, unbelievable. The Saints returning to the Superdome in the Chirico Absolutely. era. I got which really was more than a football game. Oh. I mean, really was the rebirth. Of, it was it symbolized the rebirth of a city. Um, yeah, there's no doubt. And then just some of the oddities that have happened on on the series as well. Forget like those monumental moments. Right, fail Mary. Some of the one off. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The fridge. The advent of of William Refrigerator Perry, you know. Yeah, I was thinking about your games. Is and and you already kind of have one, right? Like Drew yes, Brees breaking the passing yep. record is going to always be one of those things. Correct. On that happened on Monday Night Football, and as as a Saints fan for over thirty years now, everyone who listens to this show knows my passion for the Saints, and I was lucky enough to talk to uh, Joe Buck about. I'm winning the NFC Championship game, what it was like to call that. Talk to Chirico about the punt block. And I'm excited to talk to you about the about Breeze breaking the record last October on Monday yeah, Night Football. Special. Yeah, take me inside the Dome a little bit. Tell me a little bit about what well, that I'll was you, like. I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do, Steve, is I'll take you before the Dome. I'll take you on the very, very short drive over from the hotel to the back of the Dome when I was in the car with uh, a guy who's invaluable, on our crew, Brian, who is the do-it-all. He does everything from associate producing to, you know, driving. He does everything. The Tyson, Hill, the Tyson Hill of your we call him crew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, and then Pat McGrath, who in our business, whether it's, you know, working with Jim Nance through March Madness in the Final Four or being by my side through Monday Night Football, is a legendary talent stats guy. But the three of us were in the car, and... So uh, BMO picks us up. We're driving over. And at one point, we're at a red light. BMO says to me, he says, hey, Tess, he says, have you thought about what you're going to say tonight when he breaks the record, when he becomes the all-time leading passer in the history of the sport? And I said, no, 
Brian, I, I haven't. I, I don't do that. It's you know, I, I don't ever think about it. I just always want to be authentic and right, just react. kind of say whatever is right. Yeah, just react. Like I don't know if he's going to break it on you know a one yard bounce route or arrow route or swing pass or check down. Like you know, you don't know the moment's going to be there. And Pat McGrath said, he said, well, just knowing Sean and knowing Drew. If the moment's there, these guys are going to go for it. Like they're like they're going right. to, you know, they're going to bomb it. Gonna, and sure enough, here we go, sixty-two yard touchdown, right? And I said, I said, I don't plan anything out. I said, but when it comes to Breeze, and when you sit with Breeze and you spend time with him, and you're there for practice in the days leading up, and you see how meticulous he is with his preparation and always taking the extra air wrap, you know, he he takes the he takes the snap, he runs the play, then he takes one on air just for himself still at his age with everything he's accomplished with nobody in the history of the sport is thrown for more yards. He's taken an extra rep every time. I can't help but walk away with the feeling of greatness. I go, and to be honest with you, that's the only word that comes to mind when it comes to beast. It's just greatness. And at the end of the day, I think that's the thing I'm most attracted to with doing what I do for a living is the chance to be around greatness, the chance to cover greatness, the chance to kind of breathe in greatness. And once again, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going what's gonna to go down. But our crew was so in sync that night. And from our graphics people, our audio people, I mean, forget about it. You talk about some of the best audio that we've ever had. The audio people were dynamite. Chip Dean, the director, and his camera people were unbelievable that night. And then Jay Rothman, the legendary producer in the recent generation of Monday Night Football, he said, we've got the family moving down into place. By the way, there's Rocco barking. <laughs> Rocco. Dismiss Rocco. Hey, what's up, buddy? Um, Rocco thinks he's 212 pounds. He's actually 12 pounds. So I'm going <laughs> to walk upstairs now. But uh, anyways, so the family's moving into place. And we come out of commercial break, and now you sense it. And here's the, here's the first play. And, of course, he does it. And he Boom. goes downtown. Yep. Boom. And once again, I was like, I haven't prescripted anything. I don't have anything here. But to me, it was like, you come out commercial break. Your wife and kids, we just got the shot of them making their way to the field. It's the first play, and you're going to do it on a 62-yard touchdown on a nine route? Right. To me, it was, <laughs> what a way to do it. Like, just that simple as that. Yeah. Balls in the air, catches it. What? a way to do it. That was the only thing that came to mind. Like of all the ways you're going to do it, this is how you do it. So I said those words. And then I think I didn't speak for a few minutes. And then when they took the shot of him, I simply said, and I, and I was remembering the conversation in the car. And then the next thing I said was the only thing that comes to mind is greatness. Yeah. Awesome. And then I don't think I spoke for a couple more minutes. And then we captured the incredible audio and our crew was magnificent, but the audio was so superb of drew wanting to share that moment with his children, wanting to make this moment, not about him, but about the opportunity for a life lesson and tell his kids, you can do anything in life if you're willing to work hard for it. And the fact that our guys were able to pick that up and share that with America I thought it really elevated the moment. You know, we often talk about in our business of documenting things really, really well. But at the end of the day, we want that's our base job. We want to make a good game really good. We want to make a great game extra great. But the big moments should feel really, really big. 
And on that night, I thought that those 10 to 12 minutes felt about as big as the NFL could feel. As a fan, I felt it. You know, like he had he broke his the pat the touchdown record on Monday Night Football as well, uh, which was mm-hmm. kind of cool symmetry. You know, the two big records he's broken were both on uh, Monday Night Football, and um, or the uh, I guess single uh, the passing yards in a season. I think. Yeah, the yeah. single season, yeah. single season. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Against Atlanta. Well, you know, it's funny because the Saints and Breeze now have become aligned with that series. You know, of these great moments happening on Monday night for them. And yeah. then, of course, he comes back this year. And what happens in the opener is, you know, Booger and I and the crew oh, are down there is, wow. you know, the last minute, first time in the 50 years of the series, that you have two lead changes in the final minute of a game. And, of course, he comes up with a miraculous finish with Will Lutz's game-winning field goal. Yeah. Wow, 58-yarder. Um, yeah, just such a such a great moment, and uh, yeah, actually a couple of weeks ago I went down and um, uh, actually Joe Buck helped me out get a field pass, and I got to meet him. And I, oh, that was nice. Yeah, and I, and I just said to him, I said, you know, like thank That's you. That's a for... good friend to have right there. Oh yeah, I remember he, to text Joe next time I want to. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a, he is a good friend to have for sure. Uh, the only thing I he's I, a great I, broadcaster too, isn't he? Oh my god, I wanted to ask you that actually since you you brought me here, his most recent moment on the Altuve home run, right? Like. I watched it a bunch of times and, and just him kind of just laying out. And you kind of talked about how you laid out a couple of different times on the Breeze call and just like how effective that can be, especially on TV, to just kind of get the call, lay out, let the crowd and, and the pictures kind of take over, tell the story. Just wondering, like, when you see a big moment yourself, just like watching on the on on the couch, like maybe you're watching, you know, yeah. like uh, college football playoffs and, uh, you know, like the last minute field, or whatever big moment it is that you get to see as just an observer. How in tune are you to the call and the production and, and the TV? Do you take yourself out of the guy watching it and put yourself in no, the dude, guy dude, I'm calling the worst, it or no? I am the worst person you can ever watch television with. <laughs> it is impossible for me. And when I tell you, I'm, and not just a major live sporting event, a- any form of TV, because I cannot turn off the producer in me. I right. cannot turn off the maestro. <laughs> I cannot turn off the idea of everything that's happening. First and foremost, I tend to be a producer slash coordinating producer type who happens to be an on-air broadcaster. So for me, it's very difficult to not sit there and constantly question graphic, audio, video, pace, directing, camera quality, the cut, everything. It's very hard for me to turn it off. It's not unlike, listen, my brother-in-law is an exceptional chef award-winning chef. My wife was a former restaurateur. You go out to dinner with, you know, my wife and her side of the family, you go out to a restaurant, it's performance art now. Like, you know, you're sitting there with people that have been New York Times reviewed where, you know, every detail is being discussed. It's also appreciated, though. That's the other thing. You're not just slamming and critiquing. Good work is being appreciated. So we're really blessed in being in a golden age of our industry where we have such great broadcasters, producers, technology is better than it's ever been. And the competitiveness is there too. So everybody wants to put forth their best show. Now, am I telling you that's happening on a five camera college basketball show? No, of course it's not. We still have a lot of assembly line production that goes on to nature of the beast. When you have this quantity of what we have as sports fans right now, but at the highest level of the stuff that, 
Freddie and Drew are doing on a Sunday night and Alan Chris at NBC and what's going on with Joe and Troy on Thursday nights and Sundays and, and Jim and Tony. I mean, this is superb, you know, and the stuff at the at college football with, you know, that Kirk and Chris and Maria are doing and, and Billy Bunnell and, and, you know, and D-Mob, the director. This is superb work that we all get to consume here. Absolutely superb work. People are going to make fun of me for bringing up Buck. The reason I mentioned it, <laughs> I wanted to tell you, you can tell me how I did here. So I got to meet Drew on the field. He's, it just kind of happened naturally. He kind of walks up to me, and I yeah. I told him I was nervous to shake his hand and ask him if I could give him a hug. He said yes. I'm sure he didn't want my well, hug. Hold on, hold on. You, you asked Drew Brees if you could give him a hug? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. I, did, I was good. nervous to shake his hand. He's got an injured yeah. thumb. Least, I you know what I like? It? Here's what I like about you. At least you're being honest. At least you're like, you know, you're – you're owning it. I love it. Oh, yeah. I told the whole story on the podcast last week. Uh, my listeners right now are like, are you serious with this again? But um, mm-hmm. so then I, I said to him, I just said, I just want to say thank you for making all my dreams as a sports fan come true. And That's uh, cool, man. I'm not sure if he heard me, though, because he, he kind of it was a it was a you know limited reaction. But anyway, you mentioned well, he's the per- probably locked in to perform. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was working on his thumb exercises. You know what I mean? Like, um, but uh you mentioned the production side, and one of the cool things I learned about you doing research for this is that you produced the 30 for 30 um, yes. Roll Tide War Eagle, um, which I love. One of my favorite ones. Well, it's so nice of you to say. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I love 30 for 30. I'm a huge 30 for 30 mark as it is. Um, and I love also love rivalries like that in college sports, you know, like right. Yale, Harvard, right. uh, Alabama. Auburn, um, even there, maybe being a New York guy, you might know about this, but back in the day, D3 hockey, Elmira RIT, um, before I'm R-I-T. sorry, for D3 hockey? Yeah, one of the legendary college rivalries, yeah. I swear to God. No, no, no. Listen, you're talking about somebody who grew up on one of the great D3 football rivalries, which was Union and Ithaca. Oh, back yeah. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, when they would play in the snow to try to get to the Stag Bowl. <laughs> so very familiar with the battles of upstate New York and Division Three colleges. Yeah, the D3 Final Four is coming to Buffalo this year. I'm definitely going. That's cool, man. Yeah. Uh, That's great. But yeah, I love that, just that that idea of you know like the college rivalries and things my brother played cocky at yale got to be a part of the yale harvard rivalry um wait a second your brother played i'm a yale hockey season ticket holder which team did your brother play on uh so he graduated in 2015 so he was your brother played on the keith elaine national championship he absolutely did yes anthony day i was at i was at probably 90 percent of every home game yeah that year so was i (laughs) that was tremendous yeah so you're down at you're down at the whale so i live 10 minutes away from the rink Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would always stay at that um, Marriott, like right across I from Popeye's. I know well, the Courtyard Marriott, yeah. City Corner right there. Yeah. Good, yes. yeah, that's where we would stay. And um, That's awesome, man. Yeah. I love Yale hockey. I'm a huge supporter of Yale sports, especially Yale football. And, and uh, the head coach is a, a friend and always take on at least one intern a year from the Yale football team. So we are immersed in Yale sports here. Cheap plug, but last year I did a four-parter with – each game of the tournament with two guys from each game. Like, uh, so like for the national championship game, I had Jeff Malcolm on who had the shutout mm-hmm. and like the game before I had Andrew Miller who scored the overtime goal. You might like it. If you, if you like Yale hockey, you remember that That's year. Cool. Yeah, it was really cool. But, um, Oh, I always, your <laughs> VC is a saber now. And, um, anytime I tweet about him, I make sure to put his two eleven and two all time record versus Yale in uh, in the tweet. Um, Huh. <laughs> but, but uh, I, so so you know, like college hockey is my guilty pleasure. 
So we all, as what we do for a living, you know, it's very hard for me to sit back. I can't, it's hard to be an NFL fan where I can't ever right. go to a game. I can't, like, I'm not home on Sundays to watch games. I'm working on the weekend. I'm taking in eight games at a time. I'm prepping. I'm getting ready to get on the air. And for years, that was the same for college football, too. But the one thing I've always had in my life, going back to my childhood of growing up, going to RPI games and Mike Odessa and that team with Darren Poopa that won the title back in 85 and Adam Oates and Joey Juno and that team. And right through all my years at Boston College and being we're a lifelong BC family and, you know, the Billy Guerin team and, and those guys that, with the Frozen Four and then all the national championships with Jerry York and then living in New Haven with, with Yale and everything Keith has done. College hockey has been my guilty pleasure where I can just be a fan. That's awesome, yeah. And uh, ESPN does a great job with it, but you guys obviously kind of a face of oh college hockey. Yeah, yeah. It. yeah. Um, it. Well, how do we get down this rabbit hole? I'm not sure. Oh, we were talking That's about we were talking about War <laughs> War Eagle. There we go. Tide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about just doing that experience, like producing the documentary. Yeah, like, it's a ridiculous year of my life. Too much work. Like <laughs> tremendous. Tremendous feeling once it was done, but anybody who has produced a film will tell you is such an arduous task. It, it consumes you. Um, it's unlike any other production you do because you have far too much time and you want to you know, turn over every stone and you want it to be perfect. And at the end of the day, the story that you want to tell isn't always the story that you intended to tell. And such was the case with doing that film because, you know, I was embedded in the SEC at the time. You know I've done SEC football up until mm-hmm. I came to Monday Night Football. Yeah. And and so I was so embedded in, in Auburn and Alabama and doing their games and covering the Heisman. And then the back-to-back years of Heisman Trophy winners, the back-to-back years of playing for the national title, all the vitriol and hatred and everything. The and tree. Then, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then the tree. Yeah, the right? tree. Yeah, sorry. So then the tree. <laughs> and here, you know why? You want to know the, the greatest thing about doing Roll Tide War Eagle? I do. Every yeah. time I watch Paul Feinbaum on TV and see Paul Feinbaum is now a national celebrity and a sports media power. I like to remind him of the fact that if I wasn't listening to his show when Harvey Updike called in and then got on a plane, walked into his studio, and said, hey, I want to take you out to lunch. I want to take you out to dinner. Let me tell you what I plan to do. He'd still be on Jocks 95 down in Alabama. I love busting his chops (laughs) on that. Because what the whole vision of the film was was to use Paul Feinbaum as the central thread to weave the story of the vitriol between Alabama and Auburn. What ended up happening is I go to pitch it, and the next thing you know, we have the deadly tornadoes that tear through the state. And now you have 272 people who are dead. You have families torn apart. You have uh, towns that have been taken to the ground. And the whole movie changes, and I almost felt like pulling the plug so we had to tell a story of redemption. We had to tell a story of a state that can come together no matter the hatred, the rivalry, and the spirit that we encountered. So the entire fourth act of the movie does take a certain turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, you never know where you're going to. It's a great example. You have to be able to adapt. Um, you have to let the story present itself. And um, but like I said, trying to balance that at the time, I'm doing college football, I'm doing the Heisman, I'm doing college basketball, I'm doing boxing. I've got you know everything in the world. Plus, executive producing that film. If it wasn't for the support of Martin Kotobashi, an incredible director, 
Bruce Feldman, who obviously has left our network, but is a dear friend of mine and, and partnered with me to produce that and write that. And, um, and Connor Schell, who obviously with ESPN film supported it. I don't know how I would get through that year. It wow. just takes over your life when you do one of those films. I'm happy I did it, but I also know that I don't think I have the energy to ever do anything like that again. Wow. Yeah, you sound like, like uh, someone who just put out his first book. You know, you hear a lot of that from people who write Correct. a book, like what a yeah, beast it can very be. Very much. Yeah. Two summers ago, I was yeah. listening to the Richard Deitch podcast, and you were on it. And you were kind of talking about the process that you went through um, to find who was going to do color with you on Monday Night Football. And it was really cool. Like, I don't know if anyone who's listening has heard it, but Joe kind of talks about Witten coming to his house and a connection he made with your son and his son's teammates uh, yeah, yeah, with yeah. football. And uh, I just remember, like, going into that season, like, rooting for the team. And it's one of these things that I feel like on Twitter sometimes where whatever is said first um, – that always like that's that's it whatever was first right like like i felt like maybe that first week it wasn't great and then people said oh this isn't good and no matter what happened the rest of the year it always goes back to that first thing you know and i always felt I think that's fair in the case of assessing witten yes yeah i do think that i will say this because listen obviously this is a completely different crew this year across the board you know you have a, a new analyst in the booth you have a new director um, so everything's new this year with Monday Night Football. But with last year's crew, um, I would say if you actually listened to the show down the stretch of the last four weeks through the playoff game, it sounded and acted nothing like what it did for the first four weeks of the season. Absolutely. Much much yeah. the same like any any team with any new players coming together, you know, wouldn't play the same or just, you know, it's it's just like anything else in life that's talent based. Um, but I think, um, yes, people stamp things early and then, but you know, we don't pay that much attention to be honest with you with the Twitter verse or the Twitter intelligentsia of what you're saying, like the sheep, the sheepling and corralling of a mindset that refuses to come off, um, an opinion. It, it you know, you would kind of let that be, but I do agree that in monitoring and hearing what people were saying about, the opinion and the label that that what you just described is a fair assessment. Yeah, it's funny how much stock we put into that sometimes and forget like what percentage of real life that represents. Not a not a big one, but yeah, I, I just as someone who was like watching and, and a little bit maybe more interested in things like the broadcast booth than the average person, um, you know, I just felt like there was like maybe a little typecasting there. And so now we transition into this year, and, and obviously the biggest on screen change is Booger goes from the cart thing that was created for him and into right. next to you how about a little bit on um adjusting to that and the chemistry between you guys and how you think it's working you know about halfway through year one of that oh heck man we, i mean just it's completely different i yeah. mean you know it's it's a more conforming um broadcast and production and i think it allows book now keep in mind booker is still only what are we coming into week nine here so Booker's eight weeks in himself to being the standalone analyst on Monday night football last year, he was a field level analyst. So it's still new for him. But for me, it's like putting on a comfortable pair of jeans. It's what I've done for 20 plus years, having a guy next to me, having the ability to turn and speak to him, not this juggling act that we had last year, um, which I'm all for taking chances and, and breaking new ground and going in certain directions and taking risk if it's worth it. And if it serves the viewer, 
All we care about in our production crew, Booger will tell you the same thing. All we care about is, are we serving the fan? That's all we care about. Are we documenting the game properly? Are we giving you great information, analysis, and opinion so that it's entertaining? Have we put six days of nonstop work in? And truthfully, it's not six days. We never stop the whole year and working on our craft of being one with the league. But are we delivering in a way that serves the fan greatly? And there have been times this year where we can clearly say that's the case. And we just try to get better every single week. Um, but there are moments this year that I'm very, very proud of what Booger has done and what, and, and what he's able to do. I think Booger has a great ability to be very, very authentic, to be strongly opinionated, not care what anybody thinks, say it like it is, and not hold back. I thought if you listen to what he did in the fourth quarter of that controversial Detroit-Green Bay game, with the penalties, yeah, that was that's nuts. a great example. Yeah. That's a great example. Yeah. Of Booger McFarlane oh, he didn't right hold there. back at all. Yeah, he doesn't hold back at all. If you listen to the Steelers Miami game this past week at the end of the third quarter, uh, also again, unfortunately, with officiating, um, when it comes to how much time it was taking to administrate things with the chains, and then the end of the quarter, and then we're going to go back to the third quarter. I mean, he's very strongly opinionated. Um, he continues to grow and get better week after week after week with the comfort mechanics. He's a tireless worker. He's wildly respected among players and coaches. Um, but first and foremost, and this is key to almost anything in life, and I think Tony Romo has this. I think all the guys at the top level have this. you got to be very comfortable with who you are. You have to be very, very comfortable with who you are. There is nobody on earth more comfortable with who they are than Booger McFarlane. First of all, the guy walks around with the first name Booger. Let's just start there, <laughs> all right? But, you know, he's so comfortable with who he is that he makes you comfortable to listen to him. Is he going to get better next week? Yeah. Is he going to be better a month from now? Yeah. Is he going to be better a year from now? Of course he is. It's the nature of reps. But to be eight games into being the standalone analyst of Monday Night Football, I'm very proud of what he's accomplished. And even more so than that, he's just a very dear part of my family, my broadcast family, my personal family is a very dear friend who I have great respect for and great care for. Yeah, I I get the feeling that you, when you work with someone, they're not just like at that level. They're not just kind of a guy in the booth. Like, like I got that from the Deitch interview with you know how important it was for you to bring Witten into your home and and that's that is critically re- important for me. Yeah, yeah. that it seems unique to me a little bit. Like you you kind of maybe it's an Italian thing. I don't know. Uh, No, I mean, I'm not going to shake your head or think it's a stereotype or what, but listen, I I acknowledge you're talking about being comfortable with who you are. I acknowledge that I probably don't fit the mold of what the typical network polished play-by-play guy is. My background just doesn't allow for that. You know, I grew up with 31st cousins, (laughs) uh, mostly hanging out in my non-English grandparents' house and the back of a pizzeria in Schenectady, New York. You know, my mother came over here on a boat. I grew up, you know, the reason I was good in math is because one of the ways we assimilated, my my aunts and uncles assimilated to this country in 1970s in the Italian-American neighborhood is from betting on horse racing, right? So, you know, like, this is who I am. I'm a passionate um, guy who speaks a certain way, 
who, if you work with me, your family, man, you're sitting at the table, you're breaking bread. Yeah. We're going to be loud. We're going to have fun. And our dinner is going to be five hours long. And that's, <laughs> and I want my broadcast to feel the same way, infused with passion and brotherhood and family and fun. Yeah, I was listening to that podcast that day thinking, wow, I'm sure Jason ate really well that day. Yeah, he, well, he can put it down now. <laughs> uh, he, me, but, but trust me, when we go down to Dallas and we go to Witt and Michelle's house, it's the same, it's the same treatment. That's how he treats people. That's what it's like to be at his house. When we were in Dallas last year for Monday Night Football, Michelle Witten hosted a dinner for the crew. Not the front, you know, not the, not right. the top of the, the line, above the line crew. Yeah. The crew. The crew. Literally, he had 100-plus people at his house, fully catered, wow. entertainment, <laughs> and it started at about 6, and I don't know when it ended. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Uh let me ask you one. Let's finish up. I got two more. Yeah, let, please. Let me ask you this one quick because we kind of touched on it with, with Booger and how he handled sure. that, that fourth quarter um, with the bad calls against the Lions, if that's your view of it. I think at least at least the second one for sure is, I think, undisputable. Yeah. Uh, the first week of the season, the end of the first half, the way it ended for the Saints – um, I said to my wife last year before the playoffs, hey, no matter what happens, at least it won't be as bad as yet, as last year with the Diggs thing. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course, somehow it was worse. Um, the NFL, if it has a problem right now, it's it's that, right? It's the way – It's officiating. It's officiating. Yeah. What do you see yeah. from the booth in the stadiums? Is there a solution? Just give me a minute or two on – officiating and what you see calling one of the game's biggest brands? Well, here, here's what I see. First of all, I, we do spend time in New York um, at Park Avenue with Alberto Riveron, who is the head of officiating for the tough NFL. Yeah, tough and Al, Al cares greatly about his work, about his crews. He tries to constantly educate and inform both the public and internally and us. And I keep in communication with him, as does our crew throughout the year. He has a very difficult job. Um, I think, personally, the problem we're having right now, first of all, the best five guys, four to five guys who do it on the face of the earth, are all retired making money doing it on TV. That's number one. Right. I mean, that would be the right. equivalent of your Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Drew Brees. Talking Instead about of you know, playing on yeah. the field, they decided five years ago, oh, no, we're going to be analysts and we'll give up our prime of our career to be analysts instead of doing it. So, you know, so right away you got your best guys that are no longer doing it because John Perry just did a Super Bowl standing next to me, right? right. And yeah. others at uh, the other yeah. networks are all great at doing yeah, it as Pera. well. Yeah. Um, yes. But even beyond that, the biggest problem I have is right now with the impact, forget whether it's Good officiating, bad officiating, is a call blown, is a call not blown? It's the administration and how much it's overtaking the product that you consume. And what I don't want, nor does the NFL want, nor does anybody want, nor does Al Riveron want, is this constant car sickness of start-stop, start-stop, start-stop. A guy walking around waiting to flip a switch on his belt while America captures this single shot of a guy walking waiting to, to hit a microphone on his belt. I feel like it holds the broadcast hostage. So we try to look for ways where it doesn't do that to the broadcast. Nobody's tuning into a football game to see an official walk around for 45 seconds waiting to hit a microphone on his belt to tell you a call and, and, and officiate the game in such a pedantic manner 
and be too technical. It, it just we want this to be an entertaining experience. We want to grow and retain viewership. We want to serve the fan. Everything I care about in a broadcast and being attached to such a glorious, iconic brand like the NFL, the, the number one most culturally re- relevant entity in America is the NFL, is does it serve the fan in a positive way? And this year, I feel like we are getting so bogged down with both the criticism of officiating, the start-stop nature of the game, that it doesn't serve the fan well. And I think there are people on Park Avenue that would agree with that. There are people that are constantly, I assure you, Al Riveron is constantly trying to do what's best for the fan to administrate the game cleanly and quickly. But that's my biggest problem, and that's what needs to be solved. We can't have the experience both in the stadium and, more importantly, because more people consume it by way of the national TV broadcast, we can't have it held hostage by the officiating. You know what, Joe, as a fan, I feel like I'm afraid to celebrate, too. You know, in, when I'm getting yes. into the game and, and you know, uh, a big a punt return against Seattle, um, the so first game. You're waiting game, for the flag. You're waiting yeah, for the ball. I'm looking. Was there yeah. a flag? Even in the Dome a Correct. couple weeks ago, instead of getting in the moment and dancing and being with my people who I never get to be with because I'm in Buffalo all the time, I'm thinking – Oh, okay, is this going to hold up if there's a review? You know, like, oh, hopefully right. you got two feet in. You know, it's just such a weird sensation um, that, that, I don't know. I, I, a lot of people are like, let's just get rid of replay. And, like, I want to be like, yeah, let's just do that. But then I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to lose a Super Bowl because they call it a no, touchdown. No, you, when you, you want replay. You know, yeah, you I want, want it. But, you want admit, but, but we need to administrate the game with a common sense approach. We need to be conscious of how much time are we taking, what are we doing, and are we serving the fan? Listen, I just keep getting back to this, but it's the prism by which I answer everything in our business, whether it's within a league, whether it's an in-arena experience, but first and foremost for a broadcast. Are you or are you not serving the fan? Whatever the answer is that serves the fan, that's the correct answer. End of story. That's the consumer. We're in the entertainment business. This is not a hobby. We're here to make money. We serve the consumer First and foremost, whatever that takes. Well, let me get you out of here on this in the words of Tony Kornheiser. Um, I think I know what you're going to say, but we kind of started with the Joe being a part of Monday Night Football and and the lineage of the announcers and what that means. And I guess I want to know from you, when you're done, when your time at Monday Night Football is over and you look back on the years you spent being the guy who was calling the games for you got the, me done here. You got me retired. I'm in my forties. What are you doing over here? <laughs> hey, twenty years from now, let's go twenty years. 20 let's go twenty years. years. Thirty. I got I got Brent. I got Brent longevity working here, brother. Hey, works for me. I love your call. So you you keep it as long as you want. I'm in for it. I'm here for it as long as you you want it. What I want to know though is what do you want your how do you want to be remembered? Like what do you want your legacy as the guy who was part of this to be? Could not care less. I only care about one thing, Serving and that's fan. being a wonderful grandfather okay. someday. That's Fair. all I care about. Because if I've done that, that means that I raised my son and my daughter properly. They went on to uh, foster families, be close to my wife and me, and have children of their own. And I couldn't care less what the public cares about me one ounce 20, 30 years from now. I want to do a good job. I want to be rewarded for that good job. I want to serve the fan. I want to serve my company and those who I work with so that I can be a great grandfather, sit back, have a garden, 
pick tomatoes, have beautiful Chianti, make some gravy. nice homemade pasta. Yeah, make your gravy. We don't go gravy in no. my house, but no. some nice pasta and sauce. Sit back, relax, and reflect on the life that I've given my family, that my grandfather and my mother got on a boat in Naples, Italy, in the mid-1950s to come to New York to provide for their kids. That's all I care about. And if broadcasting the NFL and championship boxing and doing extreme mini golf on ABC delivers that to my family, as we've been blessed that it has, then so be it. But that is just nothing but getting to the finish line that I care about. Well, Joe is on Twitter. Uh, only follow him if you're going to be nice. He's at I Joe. I very rarely tweet, though. I mostly 636 read. tweets since. That's it. Yeah, since 2009. 2009. Yeah, that's not that's many. That's not a lot. No. What's that, what's that a per tweet per day? That's not a lot. You're the math guy. You're the math guy. Yeah, I, I can't. You know, it's a long <laughs> shot. It's a derby. So. It's uh, at Joe Tess ESPN. Of course, Monday Night Football is played on Mondays. They got uh, Bill. Uh, Bill wanted me to make sure I mentioned these couple things. Uh, Monday Night Football. Yeah, yeah, Cowboys and Giants this week. Personally, I'm pumped for Colts and Saints, which actually happens to kind of mesh up with another event you have, uh, which is top-ranked boxing. Uh, you're going to mm-hmm. be calling the Terrence Crawford fight. Uh, before the, yeah, it's right before yeah. Saints Colts. Um, but I, Joe, I'm going to need your focus really on See, Saints Colts. See, here's the Colts problem: there. when you do a promo 46 minutes into a podcast, it doesn't matter at this point. It's a, See, if you're hanging around, folks, if you're listening to <laughs> us right now, God bless you. You're great, wonderful people. So I should have done that first. Did I screw it up? It doesn't matter. Okay. It's nice to talk to you. That's the truth. And when you're down here in New Haven, make sure you give me a call. We'll get you for some nice calamari on at Lou Dahl's restaurant in North Haven. It'll be the best calamari you've ever had in your life. This was a blast. Come down to see a Yale game with me, and we do some calamari. Thank you so much. Okay, you be well, brother. Later. Oh, could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank Joe Tessitore for being on the podcast today And also, I want to thank Bill Hoffheimer from ESPN PR for helping me out Making that happen Book Club update. Last week we had Mark Beach on the show. Uh, his book, The People's Team and Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers, is a great Christmas gift if you have a Packers fan on your list. Uh, I kid you not when I say that I thought this was a $100 book when I opened the package. And I believe it's $35 retail, so I'm sure you can get it for much cheaper than that on Amazon. And honestly, if you have someone who likes the Packers in your family, I think it's a no-brainer gift. Uh, but thanks to Mark for being on the show. That was last week's episode 19. Check out our interview with Mark. Uh, Mark also did an interview on a podcast that I like, a Green Bay Packers podcast called Title Town. And I'm thinking about doing a little bit of a promotion with them uh, to give away my copy of the book. So look on Twitter for more information about that. All right. Uh, the active books, two of them, Sports Betting for Winners, Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting by Rob Mish. Rob, a good friend of mine, sent me an autographed copy of this book, sent my brother an autographed copy of the book, and the publisher sent me one as well, which I can share with you guys. Uh, sports gambling is bigger than it's ever been, of course, with the legalization in many states across the country. 
Uh, not that it really needed it. It was a healthy endeavor as it was beforehand. Uh, Rob is in Vegas, uh, and he has tips and tales uh, for us to read in this book, Sports Betting for Winners. Uh, he also wrote uh, two other uh, book club books in the month, including The, no- the Last Natural, uh, a book about Bryce Harper, which I love, uh, one of my favorite baseball books. Um, so it's always fun to do a, one of Rob's books. Great guy, like I said, friend of the podcast and a friend of mine. Also, I'm stoked about this, and I'd like to finish it maybe this week so we can do it next week. Uh, we'll see about that. But Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story by Greg Prado. Uh, just super excited. I'm all the way past Temple of the Dog and Bad Motorfinger in the story. And I'm getting uh, obviously ready for the boom of grunge and Super Unknown. Uh, so I'm kind of in the meat of the story. Of course, in 96, they'll break up. And then the reunion and the sad end. But I'm really into this. It's an awesome book. It reminds me very much of the untold history of Alice in Chains that we covered a few years ago in the book club. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it so far. Again, it's called Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story by Greg Prado. Uh, you can get this, of course, on Amazon. It comes in ebook or paperback. Uh, I'm reading the ebook and loving it. Can't wait to talk to Greg about it. Like I said, maybe next week. Uh, if not, before Thanksgiving for sure. Because, again, I think this could be a great Christmas gift uh, for the Soundgarden fan in your family. So, All right. With all that said, I think that's enough book club for today. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk some NHL uh, with Scott Burnside from The Athletic. All right, our next guest lives in Atlanta and covers the National Hockey League for The Athletic. He is making his second appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Scott Burnside. How are you today, Scott? I have uh, zero complaints. It's hard to believe that uh, the first month of, month of the NHL season is pretty much in the books uh, as you and I are chatting. And, uh, I, you know, I always look. You know, the first month is, you know, you're trying to figure things out and try not to overreact to, you know, what's going on around the league because it is so early. But I, I do know that, you know, historically, November is the month where coaches and GMs are looking to see where their teams are really at. I was looking at the schedule earlier today, and, you know, it's such a busy month. You know, I looked at a bunch of probably five or six teams uh, looking at their schedule this morning, and they're playing 15 games. So basically, November is you know every other night teams are playing, and so by the end of November, and certainly through uh, American Thanksgiving, um, you really do. I think that's the time when when coaches and GMs really take a hard, frank look at the you know where their teams are at, whether it's positive or negative. So I'm looking forward to November unfolding. Well, it's interesting because last year. November was the magical month for the Sabres, right? Last year, November was the month that they won the 10 games. And I remember going down to the arena for a game against Tampa Bay. I can't remember if the game was in the winning streak or just before it, but I remember going down there for the game. The Sabres won the game 2-1. to one, And, I mean, it probably could have been a 7-1 to one Tampa game. Or 7-2, to two, I guess we had two, so it couldn't have been 7-1. to one. But um, 
the Sabres held on for like the last nine minutes. But I remember like the last minute or so, everyone in the arena was standing. And I was like, wow, there's some real buzz down here. And then obviously it fell apart. Now this year, I wonder, you know, is October just going to be the one magical month? Or I know for me, it feels different. It feels like a different team. Uh, the winds feel different. Um, the things the players are saying feel different. Uh, what do you think about the Sabres so far? 13 games in, 9-2-2. Two, and two. First team in the league to 20 points. Yeah. No one would have guessed that, I don't think. <laughs> no, and you know what's interesting because you, and you're absolutely right. I, I remember being in, you know, my son was uh, playing travel hockey here in, in, in Atlanta last season. Um, and uh, I remember coming home from practice one night and it might have been the night that the Sabres got to 10, or maybe it was certainly during that streak. And so they were at eight or nine in a row or whatever it was. And we did the rough math in our heads, and we were basically saying, no way they can blow this, right? Like, they're going to make the playoffs. <laughs> win, win 10 in a row, you know, you basically, this is what you'd have to do down the stretch to miss. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. And, um, I, you know, and I'm with you. Uh, we had Carter Hutton on our podcast, uh, Pierre Lebrun and I, with uh, Two Man Advantage uh, last week, I guess. And Carter Hutton was great. And we talked about these, you know, these kinds of things. What, how does it feel different? What is different? Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, new goaltending coach, and that seems to have had an effect. But it really does start with Ralph Kruger, right? I mean, you just, you know, I... He got, I've known him for a long time. I remember talking to him one night in uh, Nashville when he was coaching the Edmonton Oilers. And you have to, you know, maybe it's a mugs game, but you have to wonder if the Oilers organization had been more stable at the time, if they'd had more patience. Um, you know, would, would the Oilers be in a different place if they'd allowed Ralph Kruger more runway to, to to make that team work because it was a very, you know, it was kind of similar, right? I mean, a lot of young guys right. underachieving, a lot of despair, um, but he had basically had no shot there. And so moved on, of course, went to soccer, was in Europe and, you know, helped out with the Canadian Olympic team in Sochi and then coached Team Europe team at the Europe, World Cup yeah. of Hockey in 16. So I just think that you can't overstate his impact on this team. And, and I do believe it's real. Now, you know, it, it, I think it. This is not a perfect team by any stretch of the imagination. I, I don't think they're a lock to make the playoffs. Um, but this start is so critical for them, and it's so critical for the confidence of guys like Jack Eichel and Rasmus Dahlin, and certainly Carter Hutton. Who, had, you know, he there were lots of ups and downs for him last season. He just seems to be very comfortable in his skin now. Um, so I, I, I do like what the Sabres have done. Um, and, and they've had some early adversity too, right? I mean, had yeah. some injuries on the blue line. So I, I, I think they are, I think they're maybe the story of, of the first month, certainly one of the top two or three stories. But to your point, it, it, you know, last year's uh, disappointment after such a, a terrific uh, start to the season, I, I, that's probably not a bad thing, right? I mean, there should be no sense of, um, you know, complacency or no sense of entitlement in that room after what happened last year. So maybe that's a that's a a good thing. And and uh, I, I'm curious if we have a conversation later in the season. You know, whether you know are they able to ride out the rough stretches that are inevitable in the season? And uh, I I just think they're much better equipped 
for that kind of up and down and to, to handle the adversity than they were a year ago. And I think that's part of experience. And, and, and I mean, how great would it be for, for the Sabres to be in the playoffs? I mean, could we oh, even we imagine, it. you know, why not? Yeah. Why yeah, not a Toronto Buffalo first round oh. series? What about that? I, I'm in. Count me in. We need a Jack versus Austin playoff round because those two guys, <laughs> when they're on the ice together, you know, I've actually, we talked about last year, and one of the games I always point to that was really a killer for them, and I don't know if you'll remember this, but uh, there was a game in Buffalo, and it was, I th- think it was the game after the streak ended, and um, it might have been Jack's best game of the year. He had two goals in the third period, and then Austin Matthews won the game with like one second left in overtime. On an absolute snipe that was misplayed by a forward who got caught on D um, in OT on the three-on-three. Let me follow up a couple things about what you said there. And I don't want to burn all the time on the Sabres, but just a couple quick things. Um, One, Ralph Kruger, I have no idea how he didn't have a job. He's so – like, I watch his press conference every night. And, man, he's just so smart and he's done so well and I'm so happy for him. Because he seems he's such an easily like I feel I like him so much already. You know he's such a likable guy, um, and I just feel so so good. Uh, two, a big difference last year, and we were all saying unsustainable all the time. Like all the wins were always by one goal or always in overtime, and all the goals were always scored by Jack and Skinner, right? And it's like this year, one of the big things I think is what a great pickup um, Johansson has been. And him moving to center, uh, what a brilliant move because now Skinner and Eichel have split up, but it hasn't hurt either one of them um, because Johansson's such a, such a great job at, at center. I don't know if you've seen the goal that Skinner scored yesterday on just a beautiful, um, uh, you know, uh, tic-tac-toe passing play in the zone. Um, and uh, it just gives them, it just stretches out. They're a little bit harder to play against, right? It's not just like, all right, let's just shut down. Uh, Skinner, Eichel, and uh, and uh, Reinhardt, and see if anyone else can beat us. And uh, it's taken a li- all the way down the lineup, right? It's taken a little bit of pressure off of Middlestat. He doesn't have to be a second line center as a 19 year old or whatever. But um, I don't know what you think about that stuff. But man, Kruger, what a what a guy! I'm I'm really happy for him. Yeah, well, and I think you know you're absolutely right. It it, it does start from the top and you know sometimes i think we overstate the importance of coaching and you know i mean it's it's been a bit of a rough ride for mike babcock in uh, in toronto and uh, you know things haven't gone you know exactly swimmingly for joel quenville in florida um but it, it, I, those are two elite coaches i think ralph kruger is going to prove himself to be an elite coach he's certainly an elite sports mind and right you throw in the soccer background there as well but certainly he's an elite hockey mind and so well regarded uh, around the hockey world you think of all the work he did in switzerland in really helping you know create uh, a national identity for that uh, their national hockey uh, team or their national hockey program in switzerland the time he spent there so lots of you know lots of respect for ralph kruger but um you know, I, I think that you also have to look, and you, you touched on this, that how this team um, has has been built. And uh, kudos to management for identifying a guy in Marcus Johansson. I, I thought he was so important to Boston last year after being acquired by the Bruins. I, I don't think the 
I don't think they get to a final. They certainly don't go seven games against St. Louis uh, without Marcus Johansson, really underappreciated uh, um, part of that Bruins team that came so close to winning a Stanley Cup last June. Uh, and you're right. I mean, Casey Middlestat now, you know, as we're chatting here, he's got seven points in 13 games. He doesn't have to play out of his comfort zone. He can learn the game in an appropriate manner. I mean, Victor Olsen, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, again, what a shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, what a shot. And, yeah. and who knows where he ends up. But again, you get this depth scoring. You, you are much more balanced. You're therefore much harder to play against. Um, that's how real teams. You know, that's how teams make the playoffs. That's how teams have success, and, and uh, it hasn't been the case for a long time in Buffalo. Um, again, it's early to see you know, if, if this can be carried on through 30 or 40 or 50 games to really solidify a playoff spot, but uh, certainly the early returns are, are wildly positive uh, you know, up and down that lineup. Yeah, and I, I think the old saying, right, is you can't make the playoffs in October, but you can bury yourself, right? And so many times we've been the Devils, you know, through nine games with six points and just already thinking there's no hope. Uh, so to be on the other end of that and be, you know, at 20 points through 13 uh, games is great. One very last thing on the Sabres, and I just want to talk about Jack for one second. You know, I think during the off season, I know these things are silly, but the NHL Network or whoever it was did like a top 100 players he barely cracked the top 50. Um, and I remember just thinking like, man, if he's not one of the 50 best players in the NHL, I got to adjust my eyes because I'm just not <laughs> watching as with as keen of an eye as I thought I was. And he's been just so good. Uh, he had a four-point game against San Jose the other night in Buffalo. And the the crowd was getting on him a little bit after the first period for not shooting. And it's almost like he heard that and was like, all right, all right. And, man, from that point on, I mean, he played a game that maybe only two or three guys in the league could play. What do you think about Jack uh, so far, what you've seen of him and and his maturation through, what is this, his fifth season now, I think? Yeah. Well, and I think you've you've touched on the the, the heart of the matter. And it really is about maturity, right? He's 23 years old. And um, I know – you know, I don't profess to have a relationship with him, but I remember talking to him at the player tour in Chicago a year ago in the fall. And even then I thought, and I spoke to Jason Botterill about this afterwards, but he just seemed already um, to be, you know, having taken the step towards um, maybe being more comfortable in his own skin and being more comfortable with having to be and being the leader and of the expectations uh, moving forward and the kind of player that he's, you know, it's not just how you play the game as as a as a young captain, but it's how you, uh, you know, handle yourself. How do you deal with the media? How do you deal with the fans? Um, I know, you know, early on there was there's lots of people who said, yeah, you know, kind of, a, you know, whether it was a chip on the shoulder or, you know, questions about his attitude, all those things that are, you know, sort of anecdotal, but then become part of the, you know, part of the narrative. I think he's he's clearly moved way beyond that now, and he, he like he's really important. And you, and you have to look around the NHL. Uh, not everyone in that kind of position uh, adapts to it at the same time, right? Sidney Crosby was built for it, right? I mean, right? Even you know, people forget how bad that Penguins team was when Sidney Crosby came in the NHL, but they became very good very quickly, and it's because he was sort of built like right. that. He and they had Malkin. Yeah, Malcolm, yeah. but and and the supporting cast, but right. even you know Jonathan Taze and Patrick Kane, 
you know, coming into the league at the same time. You know, Jonathan Taze, though, in that sort of leadership role um, very early on and, and, and came into it and, 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 you know, sort of adapted very well. I think it's taken Jack Eichel a little bit of time to accept that. I think what you're seeing, though, is a guy who leads by example and really, I, I just, I do think the sky's the limit for him. He's so, you know, it goes without saying, he's so important to where this team is going to go and what they're capable of achieving. But I do think you have seen a lot of maturity. And, and again, it's so easy to forget that he is just 23. As we point out, like, it feels like he's been around for a long time. Um, and, and when you don't have success and you're used to having success, I, I see it. I see it very, uh, you know, they're always going to be linked. Connor McDavid. Has, I think there are the same issues for him in Edmonton, right? I mean, it's been it's been a gong show there, and again, similar with new head coach and Dave Tippett, early success for the Oilers this year. Yeah, um, is it sustainable? Uh, frankly, I think the Sabers are probably built better in terms of being able to sustain an early strong start than the Oilers are. Um, but you see the same kind of frustration in Connor McDavid that you have at times seen, I think from Jack Eichel, because you want, you know, they want to win and that's how they're, that's how they're built. And I think, I, I think we're seeing Jack Eichel take um, you know, significant strides forward and, and it's going to be great to see how this unfolds. And, you know, again, if you project and, they, and they're able to get to the playoffs, I mean, those first playoff experiences are so important for elite players. And, you know, he needs he, Jack Eichel needs that taste and, and we're going to see if he's going to get it. Yeah, I mean, I think people forget McDavid's only played four more playoff games than Eichel. So, um but yeah, it'll be interesting to see which of the two, if either or both, uh, will be able to say sustain the hot start. The sportscaster here was Scott Burnside from the Athletic. Uh, love talking to Scott. Let me ask you this: uh, Where, like you said, about twenty or no, not even one month, thirteen ish, fourteen, ten, ten, ten to thirteen or so games into the season. Uh, what have you enjoyed watching play out? What have been the most interesting storylines of the early season to you? Yeah, I, and you know, certainly the Sabers have been one. Uh, Edmonton is another. Uh, again, you think of markets that the NHL really needs to, <laughs> really needs to, um, you know, to to, to step forward. I, I, you, you feel for the people in Edmonton. It's been a long, hard, dry run there, and so it, I've enjoyed watching that. I, I I guess if there were sort of surprises for me, you know, I, and it, and I watched the the game the night before you and I are taping this with Arizona in town and Arizona finally coming up with a, uh, uh, a win in the shootout. Right. Really interesting to see if that, um, you know, if, if, if that is a team, you know, haven't been to the playoffs since 2012, love Rick Tockett as a head coach. Um, there's sort of a mishmash, right? And that, you know, who are the Coyotes? What's their, you know, they're not too physical. They don't, uh, you know, they're just sort of a funny team, but their goaltending is off the charts good. And they work hard and they stay with it. And, you know, there's a team that is desperate for some playoff action and desperate for some good news in that marketplace. So, uh, you know, the Pacific is, it's sort of a, you know, San Jose has, hasn't, they aren't where I imagined they would be, which was locked into a top three spot. I just sort of imagined Vegas, Cal- Calgary, and, um, and uh, San Jose would lock down those top three spots. And then, you know, who, you know, maybe there's a fourth team from the Pacific that makes it, but maybe not. 
but Arizona's right in there. And Vancouver, they both have identical records as we're speaking right now. Uh, another team that has, you know, has been seemingly rebuilding forever. Right. And both those teams have had a great October. Both those teams are, are entering, uh, you know, Vancouver's been, uh, incredibly explosive, right? It's, you know, they, when they go, they go off and they, you know, I think they're coming off a, Seven two win over Florida. Um, man, they that JT Miller deal looks like a, a great deal for um, sure for the Canucks early mm-hmm. on. So yeah, so both the, those teams are those are the two teams I'm looking at that are you know that have been pleasant surprises. And then there's you know the disappointment. I, I really thought New Jersey and the Rangers would be better given the changes both those teams made in the offseason. And, and right now it's it, it's it's too early to say they are cooked, but. Man, it's you know right now New Jersey has six points, and now they only played nine games, so still you know still time for them. But uh, I just thought the Rangers and the Devils would be much more competitive than they have been right now. And actually, the Rangers have also just played nine games, so a little bit skewed because they haven't played as often as the other teams. But uh, man, they uh, they both need to to find a way to to make up some ground early on if they're gonna if they're gonna play meaningful games after Christmas. Who's a team that's gotten off to a start that you're sure of that there'll be a top team? Is it Colorado or Boston? Both of them? Like, who do you think is the best team so far? That's a great question. I was talking to a scout yesterday, um, and and that Colorado team is man, they're 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 built the right way. They play great. They've got good goaltending now. You know, without Miko Rantanen for a while, the leg injury. Um, you know, they're still. I still think they're they're probably as good a team as as there is in certainly in the Western Conference. Um, they are starting to get depth scoring, which was an issue for them last year. I think Nazem Kadri, um, that deal with Toronto is really uh, it's going to pay dividends. I, I thought they were going to miss Tyson Berry more than they have early on, and that's because Kale McCarr is an absolute wow. beast. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I think Colorado's the. I, so I was talking. I was talking to the scout the other day, and he said, "Well, how about this?" He said, "How about Carolina, Colorado in the final?" And now I'm a bit soft. I spent some time in Carolina last year. Uh, I've known Rod Brindamore a long time, and and that marketplace was so starved and so, um, you know, ready for what happened last year. And and they're off to a terrific start. There was no backsliding, and I wondered if there might be there. Um, not sure their goaltending is cup worthy, but. Um, and someone I talked to recently likened them to the old Detroit Red Wings when Chris Osgood didn't need to, you know, have a nine thirty-five save percentage um, for the Red Wings to 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 be Cup contenders. And maybe Peter Mrazek and uh, James Reimer are in that same kind of boat. As long as they as long as they hold the fort, that team is is deep, and their defense is as good as anybody's in the NHL. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know Denver. Denver and Raleigh in the final—that's I—I I think that'd be fun. <laughs> ah, Carolina, ugh, not for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just can't shake 2006. So I that that. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> I, I'm with Don Cherry on that one. Um, that's a joke. Uh, all right, let's let's do this real quick. Let's get you out of here on this. The um, there was a moment in the league where it seemed like every minute a new generational player was entering the league, right? It was Matthews and Eichel and McDavid. And um, there was just that North American team, right? Like how fun they were and how awesome they were. And all those players under 23 years old in one spot. And we got to see how great they were and what the future of the league was like. Well, 
if we they're all close to 23 now they're they're older they're more mature they have their years in the league what do you think about that group now in retrospect um um how good they are how good they actually are how great they will be in the you know, I'm not asking you necessarily to project the future but as we stand now as opposed to 3 years ago when they were all uh young kids and just fresh faced faced entering the league uh, what do you think about that group's kind of maturation and their um ascendant from young kids to actual you know superstars in in the professional sports world yeah no i think it's a great question and it it is interesting um, and when you think about some of those players, I guess what strikes me is that, that for the most part, they have what has eluded them is that they haven't had those deep playoff runs, right? We, right. you know, when you talk about, you know, who are, you know, the, the top 10 young players in the NHL and, you know, let's throw Jack Eichel in that group and Connor McDavid and, um, you know, Nate, you know, Nathan McKinnon is a little bit older now, but Miko ran and, uh, even then let's know, uh, yeah, you know, won around. They beat Calgary last year. Um, but oh, you, Matthew Kachuk, uh, who's a terrific young player in Calgary, and that team underachieved in the playoffs after being the top team in the West. Um, you know, Elias Patterson off to a terrific start uh, in his sophomore year in Vancouver. Uh, it, it is of those guys, you know, Austin Matthews, it, right. that Leafs team, Hasn't you know, three straight yet. years, mm-hmm. yep, they haven't won around yet. And it's, it, it has to eat at those guys. Again, sort of going back to what we talked about with Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid. Well, when you're used to having success and you're used to having things go your way and you're missing the playoffs entirely or getting bounced in the first round or, you know, it, all of a sudden people, I mean, it's too early to be judging guys like Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid, but when you don't win, you don't have team success, it does wear on you. And it, again, I, I guess it just shows you when you think about Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin, and I think of Bergeron and Marchand and, you know, that collection in St. Louis, a lot of veteran guys there, Ryan O'Reilly and Alex Petrangelo and guys who waited a long time for those, the opportunities that happened for them. Um, Yes, youth is being served. It's where the NHL is going. You you have to be young, fast, and skilled to be, you know, to play in the NHL. Uh, but I think for that generation, you know, now it's when's the next step come? When do they become the guys who lead a team into a conference final or a Stanley Cup final? And I I think that's the real, you know, that that hasn't happened for that generation just yet. And I think it's it'll be interesting come springtime to see if there is. You know, if there is, you know, that kind of charge for, you know, a Matthew Kachuk or a Jack Eichel or go down the list of those young players who haven't had that yet. And and maybe this will be the spring that it does happen. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see which one of the first young captains gets to take a cup from from Batman. Um, That will be real interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Scott Burnside writes for The Athletic, uh, which is, man, the best thing that ever happened to poops uh, since the toilet. Um, you just sit on the toilet with that thing, that app, and you know, before you know it, your wife's knocking on the door. Are you okay in there? Um, it's at Overtime Scott B on Twitter, uh, and he does a podcast with Pierre LeBron. What's the name of the podcast? Two Man Advantage. Two Man Advantage. You can find that as well, um, which is pretty great. Uh, the Athletic, couple years in. Um, any thoughts? Oh, well, happy to have a job. So yeah, yeah, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but no, it, it's been, 
Yeah, I mean, you you don't know with something that is, uh, you know, is sort of cutting, uh, you know, carving new ground out. And at a time when it's, you know, having been at ESPN for a long time and the changes that went on there, and um, it, it really is a treat. And and, it's, and you're right. I, I mean, every day, uh, you know, whether it's, I mean, the hockey stuff is, there's so much terrific stuff Um Every single day, and then you, you know all of the other sports. I'm not a huge soccer guy, but we've made huge uh, inroads in investment in covering Premier uh, League soccer in the, the UK, and it's just uh, it, it it is a fun it's fun to be along for the ride. That's for sure. I just hope I keep my place in the lineup. How's your son? How's Triple A uh, travel hockey in Atlanta? Your son getting good <laughs> gains. I mean, how's it going? Is that all right down there? What's it, where do you guys have to go yeah, to no, get a game? Oh, well, he, well, last year he was playing on a on a really good double A team, oh, okay. and we were on the road. Yeah, we were on the road all the time. Yeah, and, uh, they had you know one of the top double A teams in, in in the nation according to the rankings, and uh, we spent a lot of we spent a lot of time traveling around playing uh, playing some games. So he's uh, yeah, it was good. There's a there's a very small very passionate hockey community here in Atlanta in spite of the fact that the Thrashers have been gone since 2011. So small, uh, deeply devoted hockey group here. Well, best to your son and best to the athletic and thanks for the time today. Hopefully we'll uh, talk soon. Anytime. I want to thank Scott Burnside and Joe Tessitore for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email is the sportscasters at gmail.com. And of course, you can find this podcast on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts, where I encourage you, if you don't mind, to give a five-star review. As my friend Peter Winston says, it provides social proof that you enjoy the podcast, and I think we need social proof. So please, if you can, I appreciate that. Uh, also, greetings from Allentown, one of my favorite wrestling podcasts. For more information, it's at GF Allentown Pod. I know he's doing a 1987 WWF show, 1987, my favorite year of wrestling of all time. I can't wait for that on Thursday. That's when he has new episodes. Peter, of course, is at GF Allentown Pod. Talk to my friend Adrian Dater this week. Uh, he's got a bad back, which he's treating with uh, steroids. Uh, he's feeling better, I think. ColoradoHockeyNow.com is his website. You can find him on Twitter. He's at a Dater. And at Col Hockey Now is the specific Twitter for the website, which is, as far as I know, doing great. I know he has a billboard. He's appearing on the radio every time after games and uh, hopefully doing well. If you like the Colorado Avalanche, you should absolutely subscribe to this. And if you're a fan of hockey at all, you should probably think about it. Avs are one of the great teams in the league. And to get a yearly subscription, it's like 20 bucks or something. Uh, so think about it. Place to be nation. Follow them on Twitter. They're at place number two. B.E. Nation. 
at place, the number two, letter B, the letter E, and then the word nation. Uh, place to be nation, just words, uh, dot com is the website. They just finished the 80s poll, and I know they're doing a sitcoms, uh, best sitcoms ever battle. Um, and, of course, the uh, greatest matches in WWE history, 1 to 100, uh, they're going to be doing that as well. So, with all that said, one last thing. Let's talk about Halloween. Uh, it just passed a couple days ago, and it takes on a new meaning when you become a parent. I will be honest, I never really cared that much about Halloween when I was a kid. I always wanted to win the Halloween costume contest at my elementary school, Northwood Elementary in West Seneca. The problem was I always just went to Rite Aid and like bought a plastic costume with a mask. <laughs> Anyone who grew up uh, when I did remembers those costumes and, like, you were never going to win. I didn't understand why at the time. Like, I thought the plastic He-Man costume I had on was the coolest. And I thought it was so lame that, like, the homemade crayon won. So one year, I decided to be a bowling ball. And my mom, Lois, helped me make it. It was, like, a garbage, a black garbage bag. And I wore it. And we stuffed it with, I guess, paper. And we wrote, like, Brunswick on it and a couple holes. And I finished third place that year. And I thought that was the greatest thing. But other than that, I really didn't care about Halloween. I'm not into the decorations or the costumes. I don't like to go to costume parties. Honestly, it just doesn't matter to me at all. It was just like that in my family. We weren't a big Halloween family. None of my brothers liked it that much. Then you have a kid and it's it's a different ballgame, right? Because... It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It's You really do Halloween for her. Uh, and Paula really likes it. So she's really into it. The first year, she was Minnie Mouse. And then the second year, she was an elephant, which is my favorite costume still. It's the cutest. And then last year, she was Doc McStuffins. And this year, she's Vampirina. So the interesting thing about Halloween is my wife goes all out. And she takes Paula. Trick or, she went to a trick-or-treating event when I was in New Orleans which was the first weekend of October. So as soon as that ho- that calendar hits like October, Paul is going to trunk-or-treats, trick-or-treats at stores, trick-or-treats at malls, events at gymnastics, gymnasiums. Just She's everywhere during October in her Vampirina costume, looking cute as could be. Uh, we took her to two different malls to trick-or-treat, the Galleria Mall where my nephew met us, uh, he was a cop this year, which was really cute. And also at um, the outlet malls in Niagara Falls where there was like a dance party she did. Uh, so she gets all into it. She loves being Vampirina, getting her candy. So it was a beautiful week all week here, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, beautiful. Then Thursday, Halloween disaster. Rained all day. Miserable weather. They're threatening like catastrophic winds in the evening. Awful. So we decide, like, all right, trick or treating's from five to eight in our city. We're gonna find a window in that time uh, to get her out there. Well, she had skating. We got home from skating at like four o'clock, and she wanted to rest a bit. So five o'clock was out. So we figured, let's do it at six. So we get six o'clock. Now, there's this one pretty long street that's basically right at our corner. You know, like if you're going down the street, you turn onto my house, and we're the second house. So that long street that you turn off onto my street is where we're going to go. 
And Tammy's like, why don't you take the car, pull up to the church, park there. That'll be great. I do that. I don't see anywhere to park. I panic. I bring the car back home and walk to meet up with them. Now, it's raining enough for, like, Paula to have – or Tammy has a poncho on. Paula's under an umbrella. I have a poncho on. It's pouring. It's raining. Not pouring, but raining. Steadily raining. And I'm getting wet. Like, despite the poncho, like, my sneakers are getting wet. All the sidewalks, like, need to be redone. So they're puddling up. There's puddles everywhere. So it's not great. But it's passable. And she's having so much fun. Like, she loves going up to these doors and saying trick-or-treat and getting the candy, which she's really not even a big candy eater. Um, she actually is more interested in, like, she knows that Tammy loves Reese's, so she loves giving her those. My mom asked her for milk duds when she got milk duds. Oh, my gosh, she's so excited. I'm going to give Grandma Lois milk duds. Uh, and chocolate candy bars for Dad. Just She loves, like, sharing her candy, which is great. And she does eat some. I'm not saying she doesn't eat any. She's just not that into it, as you would think. She's more into collecting the candy, I guess, than eating the candy. So we're about 10 houses in, and it starts to pour. And I mean pour. Sheets of rain are just coming down. Now, the funny thing is she could care less. She is totally unfazed by the weather. Uh, But Tammy's like, you better go get the car. I'll get her in a few more houses, and we got to get her out of here because it's getting dark. It's pouring. The wind is picking up. Like It's to the point of unsafe. Now, here's who was trick-or-treating out there. Paula and like one other kid. (laughs) That was it. We did not see a trick-or-treater for miles. Um, So most parents had realized it was an awful idea to take your kid out in such weather. uh, But we forced the issue. I walked home to get the car. Now, I have a bad foot, so I can only walk so fast. I was telling you that in the New Orleans thing. So I'm just getting drenched, take a bad step in the broken sidewalk, practically break my foot off. I'm in so much pain. My hoodie is absolutely soaked, even through the poncho. Like, my arms that hang out are soaked. My sneakers are completely drenched through. So I jump in the door, take my sneakers off, throw my hoodie off and the poncho off, just have a t-shirt on, put my, uh, my slippers on, get in the car, drive down the street, try to find them, find them. They're still just do-do-do, trick-or-treating like it's 60 degrees and sunny. Like my daughter was unfazed by this weather. Only kid within blocks of trick-or-treating and completely unfazed. Now, the cool thing about trick-or-treating in such weather is that basically you go up to each house and you get handfuls. I mean, I think she probably only went to maybe 15 houses and she got the biggest bucket of Halloween treats she's ever got. And, and people would be like, oh, we're so glad you came. We're not getting any trick-or-treaters. Or you're the first trick-or-treater we got in 13 years of living here. I mean, it was wild. It was wild. But look at She got home and all we got was wet. No big deal. Uh, no big deal to get wet. I was glad to have fun with her. She thought it was a blast. She loved it. Uh, and that's really what it's all about, right? Like, that's why we get up in the morning. Why I battle through my health issues is like... To see a smile on her face to make her happy. You know, and she was so happy all month. So even though I don't care about Halloween, irrelevant. Because she does and she loves it. She had so much fun. She was the best vampirina in the world. uh, And I had so much fun with her. So now it's on to Thanksgiving. uh, And then it's on to the real deal Christmas. Uh, So thanks for listening to the podcast today. Thanks for Joe Tessitore. We'll see you next week.